Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to Balagan. September 28, 2000 marks the start date of the Second Intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada. More than a thousand Israelis and 5,000 Palestinians died throughout the five years of the Second Intifada. The spark, the official spark, was Ariel Sharon's, then the head of the opposition, visit to Temple Mount. Today, along with my guest, Dr. Rido Zelkovich, we're going to discuss what happened, why did it happen, what were the implications, politically and socially, on both societies, the Israeli and the Palestinians, and was Yasser Arafat, at any point, was a true partner for peace. Ido is a senior Middle East lecturer at Haifa University and the IDC in Herzliya. He is the head of the Middle Eastern Studies at the Academic College of Israel Valley. He is a senior research fellow at the Haifa University and was a visiting professor in the Political Science Department in the University of Minnesota. Ido, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, I'm sure that you have a lot to shed about what happened in the Second Intifada. Thank you, Kobe. It's a great pleasure to be over here with you today. So, what happened? I mean, was it really just because Ariel Sharon went to visit the Temple Mount or Arafat had, was looking for uh, something to light up the Palestinian uh, people? Let's try for a couple of minutes to look at a broader picture. I mean, a lot of people don't remember the spirit of time. We are now in the end of the 90s. It was the days when the Oslo Accords were about to get to their end. And a lot of people don't remember, but the Oslo Accords, well, back then in the 90s, were managed in a way that uh, both of the sides, the Israelis and the Palestinians, decided to jump into the water to run this very complicated process. They didn't accept the mutual ending point. We started the process back then in 1994, and it was crystal clear that it's supposed to be ending in 1999. The Palestinians accepted the process to end with a vital and independent Palestinian state, while there was still an ongoing debate in Israel if we should go and continue with this process or it should be stopped. As part, and I don't want to discuss uh, this uh, point right now uh, too deeply, but as part of, I would say, rejection of this process among Israeli rightists, 
there was a political violence. Uh, we should remember that the late Prime Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin was uh, murdered by uh, a Jewish uh, terrorist as a resistance to, as act of resist to this process. So both of the sides, the Israeli and the Palestinian, were facing a lot of, I would say, obstacles along the way. But um, when we approached the year of 99, the last year to the... Of the millennium. <laughs> also yeah. to the millennium, but <laughs> to the step, to this agreement. To the agreement, it, right. Yes. There were high expectations on the Palestinian side that uh, Israel will continue to withdraw from Palestinian territories in the West Bank, and there is going to be a real Palestinian sovereign state that will be established by the Palestinian that would be established by the Palestinian Authority. And, and during the last stages of the process where the Palestinians realized that their dream is not going to be fulfilled. Now giving you the Palestinian perspective for those days, because I really do think that from the Israeli side, well, Israeli didn't decide it where they want to head. And if you don't decide when you want to go, well, you know, Admiral Nelson said once that if you don't know where you want to go, no wind can take you there. And this is, I think, part of the Israeli story, by the way, until today, but it's another point to it's mention. Another, yeah, it's another story. That's another story. I think that in the moment of truth, because the Palestinian had back then very high expectations, There were a lot of energies that uh, were ongoing in the streets, and they had to decide where to utilize this energy. Arafat realized that the process is not leading to where that he expected, and beside it, I think that in this moment of truth, Arafat had to take a real crucial decision if he wants to be remembered as the founder. The founding father of the Palestinian state. Of the Palestinian state. And in order to be remembered such as, he had to give up a lot of his dreams. Arafat, I think, in this point, decided that he don't want to be remembered in the Palestinian collective memory as the one that surrendered to the Israelis, as one that actually gave, from his own perspective, yeah. Palestinian lands to the Israelis. And there was sort of a regression in uh, Arafat's approach to the peace process. But do you think that he got to this point before or after the Camp David meeting, you know, with the Prime Minister at that time, Ehud Barak, and the President Clinton? I mean, was that something that he came up with prior to the meetings, or was it something that he came up after seeing with Ehud Barak and saying, you know, like Ehud Barak was the one who said when he came back, there is no partner on the Palestinian side. So I'm wondering, from what you know, if it's something that he came up with from the beginning. I think it was all the time in here. This is something that was going on in his mind 20, I will not say 24-7, but all along the road. Kobe Arafat, like you said, wanted to be remembered as the founding father of the Palestinian state. One can also say that Arafat was the founding father of the modern Palestinian national movement after the Nakba. Of 1948. Arafat was more than a politician, he was a symbol for the Palestinian. He was the one that launched the Palestinian armed resistance to Israel in 1965 as the founder of Fatah. He was But the, the Americans know as the PLO. 
this is a common mistake, by the way. Fatah was founded before of the PLO. Fatah was the first okay. Palestinian uh, political organization with an armed wing that can also be described as a terrorist organization. <laughs> Actually, Fatah was a terrorist organization until uh, the mid-90s. Without going into the Oslo Accord, Fatah was not going through this source of rehabilitation. And I know, by the way, I'm also claiming that until today there are some parts of Fatah which still can be described as a terror organization. They haven't completed, by the way, until today this process from a revolutionary movement or terror organization into a political party. But let's leave it aside. The PLO was established later on in 1964, five years later on, as a reaction for Arafat uh, initiative. Back then, Jamal Abdel Nasser and the Arab League were very concerned about this Palestinian uh, revival, about the fact that the younger generation of Palestinians started to speak and think and dream about uh, armed resistance to Israel, about armed struggle. And this is, uh, I think, uh, one of the most important uh, contributions of Yasser Arafat into the Palestinian narrative. So let's say as the one that carried gun for almost all of his life, Fatah was falling in love with his image. He saw himself uh, as a revolutionary. And for example, all of his life, he didn't uh, took off his uh, military unit. The uniforms, yes. Yeah. If yeah. I remember correctly, even uh, when they went to sign the Oslo Accords, he refused to take off his gun, actually his gun belt, when they went uh, <laughs> to the Rose Garden. He was yeah, giving a hard time for everybody. He was coming with the, the military uniform and with the gun, but without gun inside. Yes. Without the gun, yes. Yes. By the way, I think that the American security services and the Israeli security guards could manage Yasser Arafat easily. <laughs> Even, I think, Yitzhak uh, Rabin could could manage it uh, without any yeah. help. That's a classic case of a political uh, leader that was still, I think, living his uh, past. And he was not ready, I think, maybe psychologically, to doing this makeover in the end of the day. And when suddenly the option of uh, leading a struggle, resistance, was back on the table, Arafat uh, warmly adopted this uh, choice. Old habits die very hard. That's the case with Arafat and Tel. And I think that also, if I remember correctly, I mean, the years of Oslo from 1994, even though there wasn't a complete separation between Israel and the Palestinians, but the economic situation, mainly in the West Bank, but also in the Gaza Strip, was getting better. And there was a lot of improvement in the economic situation of the Palestinians. And then, you know, people started talking about the corruption of Yasser Arafat and his people. And do you think that that had some sort of, you know, of a way for Arafat to uh, take the spotlight from the criticism on his leadership back to the Israelis and to the armed resistance? I would say, Kobe, that trying to think about those days, you know, I will tell you a story. I, as you know, was involved in the past in different uh, efforts to create Israeli-Palestinian civil dialogue yes. on political issues, you know, track to diplomacy efforts. As one that believed that in the end of the day, we are Israelis and Palestinians lives together side by side, and we should uh, 
find a solution that will help us to live uh, peacefully and to prosper in the end of the day. In one of the meetings that I had back then with Palestinian colleagues, I had a conversation with a very famous Palestinian businessman. And he told me, you know, if I'm uh, try to analyze those days of Oslo back then, well, a lot of uh, scholars and people, politicians, used to pray the economical uh, situation and the fact that the life in the Palestinian territory became a little bit more prosperous and easier as part of uh, the ongoing process. Well, there was no sharing of the wealth back then. And he said, told me in this uh, four-wise uh, conversation that only people like me that are part of the elites, they are in very strong positions inside the Palestinian economic sector, enjoyed this process. If you look, you know, on the dry statistic and you see that, uh, well, what is the difference between one that uh, is average salary is uh, $250 and suddenly jumped into $275? That's not the most important thing for a human being. $25 per month would not change people's state of mind. Instead, for us, the Palestinians, this is, I think, the most important thing to understand from his story. For us, the Palestinians, the most important thing was our dignity, our freedom of movement. And we haven't felt that, first, the Israelis consider us as human beings, as equal partners. And he said, even me, that I have a VIP card and I can come and go from Israel four or five times a day when I'm driving my new Mercedes, and I stopped by a young Israeli soldier. soldier in the checkpoint, I'm realizing that I don't have the basic thing that all of the people think about and want to have, freedom. So I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, that this uh, formula of uh, economic peace can lead us somewhere. People before of having money in their pocket for a dignity and the opportunity to feel that they are the master of their own destiny. We are talking about, you know, dignity, and I tend to agree with you. I mean, we both served in the West Bank. You spent all of your service, actually, in the West Bank. Some of it also in the Gaza Strip. Some of it in the Gaza Strip, but mainly in the West Bank, if I remember correctly. I remember the poverty and, you know, what was the Palestinian lives. I tend to agree with you that people need to see some sort of horizon and uh, to get hope. And the Palestinians didn't get any hopes from the Oslo Accords, I mean, from the way it was running prior to 1999. We forgot to mention two very important things that happened along the way. Like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, there were very high expectations from this process, but the common people didn't just want to improve their life over there, to change their life dramatically from the economical perspective. People wanted to, to feel first and foremost this sense of a national belonging. They were dreaming about a Palestinian independent state. We should remember that the first intifada that broke out in 1998, end of 97 actually, December 9th, yes. this intifada broke out to the first one, broke out because the younger generation, they were right. the ones that led this historical uh, event, felt that their parents 
are being humiliated on a daily basis by the situation. The reason that people started to resist beside of this collective, uh, I would say, social feeling was because they were desperate and they wanted to create a change. And when the first intifada were launched by this Palestinian young generation, they carried with them the Palestinian flag. They had a national aspiration. They wanted to be the generation that created change. They saw themselves as historical generation, which is historical task is to create and build a Palestinian state that will be established by a popular resistance. And the Oslo process was a sort of a continuation of the first intifada by other means, a return of Yasser Arafat and the PLO leadership from Tunisia. From Tunis and from other places. Yeah. Was a sort of a sign for the future. One of the most important and I think the problematic also pillars of the modern Palestinian identity, it's the right of return, which I think is more a claim of return, but let's uh, be more... That's uh, also for another topic that yes. we're going to discuss. More How UNRWA is failing the Palestinians? <laughs> 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 Let's stick to the Palestinian narrative. And I think when they saw Arafat uh, and the senior PLO leadership that just two weeks ago we were considered as uh, major terrorists by the Israelis and by the Western world, suddenly returned into the Palestinian territory, they saw it as a sign and as a sign of hope that one day maybe there would be a massive return. And from there on, they wanted to see how a Palestinian state would be built by the people because since the 70s, let's say, even the mid-70s, exactly 1974, after the PLO received his uh, political status as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, they started to function actually as government in exile. And suddenly this government in exile came to its land and everyone was accepting they will build a vital Palestinian state negotiation, but also by creating change and impact on ground. And the Palestinian Authority, well, didn't deliver the goods in the end of the day. I would say also that uh, if you want to see sort of, let's say, a continuity between the first intifada and the second, when the first intifada was led by the younger generation that saw their parents leave. And until this point, I think, they were, I think, more... I will say, social and political connections between Israelis and Palestinians. Today, it's sometimes hard to remember, but, you know, even me, you know, as a one, uh, well, Kobe, we're getting older. Even me, as one who <laughs> in, the, in the 80s, I can still remember that uh, once in a while in the beautiful streets of my uh, hometown, Haifa, Haifa, which I think is the most beautiful city in Israel, but that's uh, another story. You could see in our uh, streets, Palestinian cars goes once in a while, you know. Yeah. With, with, with the Palestinian place. Yeah. Yes. in orange. Yes. Uh, a lot of Palestinians used to walk in Israel. It was pretty common that right. uh, four or five Palestinians even renting a, a plate in Haifa, Be'er Sheva, Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem. I remember those plates and those cars all the time. So yes, I yeah. know what you're talking about. 
it's not a romantic, you know, memories, then there was not equal rights, or equally or equal relationship between uh, us and them, between Israelis and Palestinians, but they knew us and we knew them. And there were sometimes even strong personal ties. You know, politically, if you want to communicate with someone, to reach an agreement with, to reach in the end of the day, to agreement with him, you should know him. And since the Oslo Accords, and by the way, this is, I think the measure of the Israelis wanted, by the way, we moved into another, uh, I think, uh, period in this complicated relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. We moved into the area of uh, separation, physically, politically, economically, by far, yes. And now with the separation wall, which technically lies on the green line, you can well, say well, that the separation is almost complete because you don't mm-hmm. get to see Palestinians as you used to in Israel. I don't remember where I read it, but it was a long time ago. Somebody said that we got used to see the Palestinians only through the telescope, through the guns telescopes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember as a kid that I used to see a lot of Palestinians, but I don't know these days how many... Israeli kids get to interact with Palestinians, or Israel is in overall to interact with Palestinians, besides what we see on TV. Yes, and uh, for the current uh, young Palestinian generation, and even two generations, if you would like, for them, the only image of Israel is that uh, in their mind is the image of the soldiers, the soldiers, or the settlers. Right. And by the way, from their own perspective, uh, the settlers and the army comes together. They don't see the settlers in the West Bank as a civilian uh, population. They see them as a part of the Israeli establishment over there in the West Bank. This is the Palestinian perspective. Now, let's go back to the 2000 uh, Intifada, the Laksa Intifada. So the generation that led this Intifada, that confronted the Israelis were the generation that didn't knew the Israelis, that grew up as small kids in the days of the First Intifada and later on in the days of the Oslo Accordant for them, to continue the struggle against Israel is also their way to uh, show their parents or their older brothers that uh, they are uh, carrying the guns, the stones, and the revolution to its next stage. There is also another very important point I think that we should elaborate on, if I'm uh, thinking about those days, you know, back then I wasn't a historian. I, you were younger, <laughs> a lot younger. I was younger and, uh, and more beautiful. And today I'm just younger. We just age. Still <laughs> We're not getting older, we are aging. Yes, no. Back then I was young and beautiful. Today I'm just young. I'm just young. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that when the clashes started uh, between the IDF and the Palestinian, uh, first the Palestinian protesters and, and later on the Palestinian security establishment that jumped on, decided to join the protesters and the struggle was uh, joined by uh, popular resistance and armed uh, resistance. I think that uh, the IDF was ready. Everyone was ready. The launch out of the second intifada, it wasn't caught uh, the Israeli army by surprise. I mean, so nobody was really surprised of the no. second intifada beside the Israelis, uh, not the Israeli no, army, no, not the Israeli government. Surprised. I mean, the army, as far as I remember it, you know, I'm 
trying to analyze it now, not as only one that was there, but also as one that uh, have a trans uh, perspective to realize and to understand it more deeply. I think that the diet was ready. It wasn't surprised by uh, this uh, intifada. Until today, there is still ongoing debate if the second intifada was uh, planned ahead by the Palestinian Authority, or maybe it was a popular... Uh, a popular zi- intifada. Yeah, popular intifada that was a historical event that launched from bottom down and suddenly created uh, big waves of uh, violence that turned into, created a dynamics, confrontation against the Israeli side. I think that the truth is somewhere over there in, in the middle. In the middle. When Ariel Sharon traveled to the um, Temple Mount, that was only an excuse for the Palestinians to let all of these energies that I mentioned before to spread away. But who uh, benefited from it? I will elaborate on this point uh, in a minute. But you know, Kobe, that was, I think, the biggest mistake that the Palestinian Authority did, that, that they let the streets to... Uh, Take over. Mm-hmm. When you let Tiger mm-hmm. to get out of his cage, no one can know what uh, the Tiger is going to do. Right. That was actually what was going on back then. So uh, what you are saying is that Arafat didn't plan it, but he was more uh, like riding the wave instead of leading the people. And furthermore, after he started to ride the wave, he also tried also to play the orchestra. Right. Listen, this is, was part of the uh, character. character. Uh, this yeah. is the guy. And, you know, in the days of fighting, in the days of clashing, he was alive. Mm-hmm. That gave him reason to live. He liked all of these pompiosing speeches. Yes. And all of these cliches. I am General Yasser Arafat, the, the, the founder and the leader of the Palestinian resistance. That he was all guy and this is gave him back his youth. And I really do believe that after he realized that he cannot sign an agreement that related into Palestinian states that clashing with his own personal life story. I think maybe even choose personally to, to continue the struggle, to continue the intifada, and to die while struggling, to be remembered as one that didn't give up. So he and wanted to be remembered as a shaheed, as the Arabs call it, as a martyr. Yes, in Arabic. <laughs> and and one, one should also remember that during the Oslo days, he was bashed by uh, Hamas, not only him personally, but also Fatah. And Fatah, as the one that led and created the Palestinian arms struggle against Israel, was uh, charged by Hamas for giving uh, up on the Palestinian dream and uh, the Palestinian uh, struggle. And suddenly, this intifada gave Arafat back his youth and also gave Fatah once again the rule of the body that uh, lead the Intifada in uh, leading the Palestinian uh, armed uh, struggle. By the way, uh, Hamas uh, was going out from this Intifada with the image of the Palestinian, uh, I would say, uh, winner in brackets, yes? After this second Intifada, yeah. they created themselves this image of the Palestinian resistance movement, the one that uh, led the, the jihad and didn't give up, even to very hard times, but If you will go back to the statistics, Fatah actually sacrificed more of uh, its men during the Second Intifada than Hamas. Fatah lost more men in the clashes. I would not say battlefield because it wasn't actually war, but right. 
in the classes in Hamas and even that uh, didn't help them much. Yeah, it didn't help them uh, in this political uh, strife that they are suffering from. So our time is almost up for this episode and we definitely have a lot more to speak about. So we will reschedule and uh, wow, meet you again. To finish the episode, I would ask you two questions. The first one is, do you think that Yasser Arafat was at any point a partner for peace? And would you consider the second intifada to be the breaking point for Israelis and Palestinians' support on the two-state solution? Well, the very, very good questions. I will say the following. Arafat was a very complicated person. I don't know if he was ready for this or not. I really do think that in the end of his life, like I said before, he wanted to go back to his past and to live according to the principles that he built for the Palestinian national movement during the 60s and the 70s. But it doesn't matter if Arafat was really inside for this or not. In politics, you should deal with the leader of the other side. We not choose our partners. Therefore, I cannot say if Arafat was a partner for PCS yes or not. It's very hard to give you a short and clear answer on that. Arafat was the leader of the Palestinian national movement. So he was to address for a dialogue. I think that even that, also I am, by the way, have a lot of critics about, just like thought about these days. I think that Arafat wasn't a partner for this Historically, it's crystal clear that he chose resistance instead of uh, trying to stabilize the situation and uh, to continue the negotiation from a different standing point. But although I have critics for Arafat, maybe uh, also about the peace process itself, but then I really do want to say that I think that the fact that Israel approached the PLO was the right thing to do. And Even though that we are still living in very interesting uh, time that there is a antitrust crisis between Israeli leadership, there is no trust at all. There is a crisis between our leaderships and Israelis and Palestinians. I think that, and although that the peace process is on hold, is in freeze for the last uh, even decade, yeah, the two-state solution is still alive. And although Today, some people are trying to think in brackets out of the box and find an alternative uh, solution for our situation. I think that it was right to approach the PLO because the PLO is the only political body that can have a responsibility in the future for the Palestinian life in the West Bank in the Gaza Strip. And the PLO aspiration is still going for establishing a vital Palestinian sovereign state on the 1967 borders with the East, with East Jerusalem as its capital in this format or in other format. And historically, if we are realizing that the two-state solution is still alive, I think the answer may be surprising to you right now to see Arafat as a partner was the right move. For that time. Yeah, for that time. And, and I choose my words very carefully, and I want to repeat it again. It was right to choose Arafat in the PLO as a partner, but maybe Arafat was not the right partner for peace, but the PLO was the right partner for political process. And so that's my complicated answer for this 
hard question. And the second one was? The second one was, if you think that the second intifada was what broke the Israelis and the Palestinians' trust in the two-state solution. I have a very interesting story to share with you. In one of the Israeli TV shows, I remember that I saw an interview with one of the most prominent Hamas leaders in Israeli jails. And he said that back then, in the 90s, they are, I mean, Hamas leadership. Yeah. Understand and realize very simple one thing, that the Israeli look at the Palestinian in a essential way. Although the Palestinians is the same. Are the same. Yeah, they are the same. And even more than that, they are even sometimes not Palestinians, they are just, you know, Arabs and all of the Arabs the same. By the way, this is very popular approach until today by the Israeli right. Some parts of the Israeli right. Let's be frank. Outside the classes of the universities, and you know, the one that not deals with politics on a daily basis, who knows what are the differences between Fatah and Hamas and the PFLP and the DFLP and the PFLP General Command and the Islamic Jihad. And you know, I can continue with all the names of the Palestinian factions, but all of these factions have different goals and different worldviews. And Hamas realized that Israelis don't care about. So therefore, they have only one task to complete, to create a huge mistrust between Israelis and the Palestinians. And they decided to do so by... Terror. Yeah, by blowing up the peace process, literally. And that was the moment that they started to blow away, to buses in the air, to create terror as a state of mind, not just as physically, but a state of mind. Terror is first psychological, more than it is... Uh... Yeah, definitely. And everyone that deals with terrorism and with counter-terrorism know that uh, terror that means one don't go and uh, kill people just for his fun. Maybe there are some uh, psychos all along the way, but okay. Right. Uh, organization using terror in order to receive political goals. And this is what Hamas wanted, to cut the peace process, to create demoralization both sides to create mistrust between the people themselves. I don't think now about the leadership. I'm talking about the common people, both sides. And you know what? Unfortunately, from my point of view, historical perspective, Kobe, I'm very ready to say that they succeeded. Therefore, this was a very hard moment that uh, I think peace as a state of mind was taken out from the Israeli heads and was thrown to the earth. And until today, it's very hard to convince the public in Israel to trust the other side. Yeah. Because I really do believe, according to all of the opinion polls that you can find and read it, the majority of the Israelis will support the two-state solution. solution. If one's going to promise them that there is not going to be terror from the other side. Right. If the Israelis yeah. will have the security, they will support the two-state solution. Yeah, but today you have in a strife in the Palestinian side. There are two different political entities. You have right. Hamastan in the Gaza Strip, and you have the Fatah land in the West Bank. So with whom you going to deal? And beside it, there is a big lack of trust. Which we created, by the way, uh, in the Gaza Strip, some will say. But that's for another discussion. 
It's never getting bored of everything in the Middle East. Yeah, it's always interesting. So my friend, I really want to thank you for enlightening us. I think that even for me that uh, you brought some new things and shed a lot of light on what was going on. I really want to thank you, Ido, for joining us today. And I want to thank uh, you guys for listening. And stay tuned uh, for the next episodes of uh, Balagan. Thank you, Ido. Thank you very much, Corbin. It was a real pleasure to be over here with you. And I want to send a lot of love from uh, Haifa to our friends in the United States, especially during these very hard uh, days that we are all uh, going through as one humanity. So stay safe over there. And that's the most important thing for us. Yes, I agree. Thank you, my friend. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.